On December 23, 1991, on 11th Avenue in Corsicana, Texas, a house caught fire under mysterious circumstances. This fire would claim the lives of two-year-old Amber Kukendall and one-year-old twins Carmen and Cameron Willingham. Their own father, 24-year-old Cameron Todd Willingham, would be tried, sentenced to death, and executed for their murders. But for the last several years, the question has been raised, did Texas get it right or was an innocent man executed? Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Dr. Crime, a true crime podcast hosted by me, Rebecca, a criminologist, and me, Justice, a doctor of forensic psychology. You won't find clickbait titles, selfie thumbnails, or spooky music to set the mood here, but what you will find is ethical true crime with extra focus on empathy, accuracy, and a viewpoint from professionals. So grab your coffee and let's get started. Cameron Todd Willingham, who just went by Todd, was born in Oklahoma in 1968 and was raised by his father and stepmother. Todd was a troublemaker and was arrested for DUIs and stealing before eventually dropping out of high school in the 10th grade. He met his future wife, Stacy, in 1988. She also came from a very troubled background. When she was four years old, her stepfather strangled her mother during an argument. Todd and Stacy's marriage was just as tumultuous, with allegations that Todd was abusive, that he was cheating on Stacy, that he was an alcoholic, and that he was physically abusive towards Stacy, even when she was pregnant, allegedly to induce a miscarriage. The year that the fire took place, Stacy worked in her brother's bar, which was called Some Other Place, and Todd was unemployed. He'd previously worked as a mechanic, but was staying at home with their three daughters, two-year-old Amber and one-year-old twins, Carmen and Cameron. Now, on to the day of the crime. December 23, 1991, 11-year-old Buffy Barbie, who also lived on 11th Avenue, a few houses down from the Willinghams, was playing outside when she smelled smoke and ran inside to tell her mother, Diane, that the Willinghams' house was on fire. Diane ran over and saw Todd standing on the porch of his burning home. He was wearing a pair of jeans, and his chest, his hair, and his eyelids were all singed. He was screaming, my babies are burning up. He yelled at Diane to go call the fire department, so she ran to a neighbor's house. While she was doing that, Todd allegedly used a stick to break several windows of the home in order to enter the home, but flames shot out from all of them, so he gave up and collapsed to his knees in the front yard, screaming, my babies, before falling silent. Several neighbors who witnessed the aftermath of the fire said they saw Todd on the porch screaming, but said, despite yelling at Todd to go back inside, he didn't. He did, however, move his car away from the fire. Um, Now, this looks really bad, but when asked about it, Todd said that in his hysteria, his only thought was that the fuel from the car may potentially make the fire worse. Witnesses also said Todd wasn't coughing or showing other signs of smoke inhalation, and later blood tests would confirm that Todd had a normal level of carbon monoxide, meaning he was not suffering from smoke inhalation. Firefighters quickly arrived on scene and began to put out the fire while Todd became increasingly hysterical. A police chaplain pulled him aside to talk to him, and he gave his first version of events. That his wife, Stacy, had left early that morning to go do some Christmas shopping, and he had fallen back asleep only to be awakened by his two-year-old daughter screaming, Daddy, Daddy. While he was telling the police chaplain this story, Amber was brought out of the house by a fireman, um, and she was immediately given CPR. 
Todd ran towards her and then took a sharp turn towards the house towards the girls' room. He had to be physically restrained and handcuffed, and in the struggle, he even gave that chaplain a black eye. Oh, jeez. Yeah, he was fighting tooth and nail to get back into that house. I was going to say, he is fighting hard to get back into that Mm -hmm. house. He was taken to the hospital to treat his minor injuries that he had to one hand and one shoulder. While he was there, he was told that his three children had passed away from smoke inhalation. The Corsicana community really rallied around Todd. They threw events to raise money for funeral expenses. And while we can't judge anyone on how they grieve, Todd was said to have been acting kind of unusually afterwards. He was playing darts, drinking a lot, partying, just right in the aftermath of his children's death. Yeah, but that's... I wouldn't necessarily consider that weird because, A, he's already an alcoholic, Mm -hmm. and when you're an alcoholic and you lose three of your children that's that's gonna set you off that's gonna set you off big time so like i know it's not how we all think about it but at the same time like after that type of grief like yeah you're gonna drown your sorrows in alcohol and drugs especially when you've already like have that type of life that's ugh. yeah i agree i think maybe it's not how some of us necessarily think we would grieve, but it doesn't really make it mm-hmm. wrong, if that makes sense. Yeah, especially if, you, if they already have an alcohol addiction, like, that's... Yeah. Losing a child's gonna set that off. Agreed. Let's discuss the scene of the fire. So, there are conflicting reports about where the children were found. Quite a few times in research, I've seen that Amber was found in the master bedroom, tucked into the bed, but... The official reports all say that all three girls were in their bedroom with Amber found face down in the bed and the twins found on the floor of the bedroom near the door. There was a fire investigation conducted four days after the fire by Douglas Fogg, the assistant fire chief, and a deputy fire marshal named Manuel Vasquez. Firstly, they did note that there was a refrigerator pushed against the back door. That would come up later. There were deep deep char marks along the baseboards and the floors, which is unusual because, as we know, heat rises. So usually fires burn upwards, but this particular fire had stayed low and burned in odd patterns that looked almost like puddles on the floor. These patterns, usually formed by flammable liquid, are referred to as pore patterns. They examined glass from the broken windows and found the glass to have a spiderweb break pattern, which is called crazed glass. At the time, this was thought to be from a fire burning hot and fast, another indicator of a liquid accelerant being used. Multiple samples of fire debris taken from the home tested positive for an accelerant, but all of the samples that did test positive were found right around the front door, and the rest of the samples tested negative. The fire investigation determined that there were three points of origin of the fire. The hallway, the girls' room, and at the front door. Multiple points of origin almost always points to arson or that the fire was set intentionally. They specifically thought liquid accelerant had been poured in the children's rooms, under their beds, in the hallway, and out of the front door to prevent anyone from being able to escape, which is also why why they thought that refrigerator was pushed against the back door. Essentially, someone had set the fire intentionally and done it in a way that made the home a death trap. 
So believing that the fire was set intentionally and knowing that Stacy wasn't home at the time, Todd became their number one suspect. Before we discuss more about this case, can you give us a little forensic psych perspective on the typical profile of an arsonist? Well, there's a lot of information here. There is a difference between an arsonist, a serial arsonist, and a pyromania. Um, the reason I write that distinction is because this wouldn't be a serial case, so we don't need to talk about that type of arson because it is different. So this would be kind of arson versus pyromania in order to understand the kind of crime. So anyway, uh, the profile of an arsonist is normally a male between the ages of 13 and 19, um, male, although there have been an increase in cases in between uh, females between the ages of 13 to 17. Um, behaviors associated with arson are increased aggression, hostility, impulsivity, running away from home, alcohol abuse, and other property crimes associated with antisocial personality disorder. Arson is the illegal fire setting where pyromania is a psychological syndrome where compulsive fire setting is to satisfy a psychological need. Arson is normally about an intended victim, but with pyromania, it's categorized by attraction and fascination with fire and its effects. There is normally emotional and sexual arousal and tension before the act, gratification when the fire is set, and then an orgasmic relief while watching the fire burn. So you would want to look for, you know, did he have that behavior before? Behavior before was he very like aroused and like so happy during, and then did he feel like that sense of relief after? Because if so, that would be more like pyromania. Um, but arsonists do basically arsonists com uh, commit the crime for the intent to harm, whereas pyromania doesn't have that intent. Most pyromaniacs will try and light small things on fire and avoid harming others because the goal isn't to harm, it's to self-gratify. Moving on, there are also four types of arsonists. There's the jealousy motivated particularly by men who feel their masculinity is in question. Um, then you have the would-be hero. Now this is like the trope where the firefighter sets the house to save all the people, feeds the ego you know, very heroic, very vain. Um, then we have the excitement fire starter. This is where they just want the thrill of watching a fire burn. You're going to find this in most of your young offenders. And then we have pyromania, which is compulsive fire setting to achieve a sense of sexual gratification. Along with these types of arsons, there are two types of typologies. Just like with serial killers, there is organized and there's unorganized. Organized are likely to carefully plan out the fire. They escape. They have an escape route figured out. They utilize different devices who, uh, with complicated accelerants and elaborate measures to avoid detection. Um, disorganized, they use whatever is possible. They're very sloppy. They don't have a plan. It's very impulsive. Um, they're likely doing it because they need the high, and so they just do it. They don't plan it out. As for arson motivation, there is revenge, there's excitement, um, vandalism, crime concealment, profit, which is where like your white collar crimes come in, and then extremist motivation, um, which is like hate crimes, domestic terrorism, political agendas, and things like that. So some have non-criminal desires, such as being a hero or vanity reasons. Like, you know, the hero, they're not doing it for like a criminal desire they don't want to be a criminal they just want the notoriety of saving people they want to feed their ego 
There is a profile of a serial arsonist, but we can go over that at a later date just because it's really not relevant to this case. It's only one house. Now, if the fire is not a psychological need, then the fire is looked at as like a cleansing and kind of ruining everything and destroying everything someone has. Um, however, there's also a lot of vanity and the um, heroism that can also be discussed. So you would kind of want to look at how Todd would have viewed this fire. Was he doing it so that he could save his kids? Doesn't really sound like it. He would have grabbed them and gotten right out of the house. Um, so kind of a few little ticks there. Um, we also would need to classify this as a filicide case. Um, I know we've talked about this in quite a few episodes, but when it comes to filicide, there's really only five reasons a parent would kill a child. Um, it's altruistic, which is where they think that they're really saving the child. Then there's psychosis, which kind of leads into altruism. Um, then we have accidental. Then we have the unwanted child and then spousal revenge, where they basically want to make the spouse suffer. So looking at even their profile and like the reasons why filicide happens, I don't see Todd really fitting in any of those. So he doesn't really fit a huge portion of the series of like an arsonist. He doesn't really fit for filicide. So that's just something to kind of keep in mind that like so far the music and the words aren't adding up. Um, so there's just so much information. And I'm really thinking that if this was arson, it wouldn't be for heroism. I wouldn't think it would be for jealousy since his wife was the breadwinner. We know that dads will kill their children are likely under financial stress. So it would make sense. However, in situations like that, the stress comes from the person making the money. They're seeing the money come and go as opposed to the one who isn't dealing with the money. So I do find that a little peculiar. Yeah, I would definitely agree. Um, I would think that if somebody were to feel like they had to commit a crime against their family because of financial stress, it would be the person who was experiencing the financial stress. Mm. Yeah. Um, one last thing that I want to point out about that initial fire report is that they pointed out some things around the home that would come up later, um, specifically a Led Zeppelin poster featuring their classic Fallen Angel and an Iron Maiden poster that had a skull on it. Um, big shocker, this is the early 90s, but these things would later be used as evidence against Todd. Okay. On December 31st, Todd was brought in for questioning. This time, his story was that Stacy had left around 9 a.m. to go get the kids' Christmas gifts from the Salvation Army. Todd heard the twins wake up, so he gave them their bottles while they laid on the floor of their room. They apparently did this often. Um, there was a baby gate on their door that they couldn't climb over, but Amber could. Amber was still asleep, so he went back to bed only to be awoken later by her screaming, Daddy, Daddy, in a house full of smoke. He said he slept in the nude, so he quickly felt around for a pair of pants while he screamed, Oh God, Amber, get out of the house. He said he remembers her screaming coming from her room. He ran towards their room, but the smoke was so thick by that point that he could no longer see. So he crouched down and crawled to the room, and he stood up, catching his hair on fire. He tried to reach out for them blindly, but he ended up only finding a baby doll. Um, and when he thought that he was going to pass out from the heat, he ran out onto the front porch, which is where he saw Diane Barbie and told her to call for help. He said that after she left, he tried to get back inside, but he was unable to. 
He said the fire must have started in the girls' room since that's where he saw the brightest flames. He said there were three space heaters in the house. One of them was in the girls' room, and he mentioned that Amber had gotten in trouble occasionally for playing with it. He claims to have heard a lot of crackling and popping in the fire, which led him to think that it may have been an electrical fire. Now, after all of that, one of the biggest concerns to the fire investigators was how Todd had managed to escape the fire without burning the bottom of his feet when he wasn't wearing any shoes. Um, and remember, the investigators specifically pointed out that the fire had burned very low and so hot that it had charred the floor. So the investigators were convinced that Todd had committed these murders. Jesus. Now, I know it's a factor in so many cases. Was the family having financial difficulties? Yes. Um, like I mentioned, Todd was not employed, so Stacy was supporting all five of them on a bartender salary. That's kind of why she was getting their gifts two days before Christmas at the Salvation Army. Um, yeah, they were struggling. And, of course, we always want to think about life insurance in these cases, um, the children did have life insurance policies on them, but they were for $5,000 a piece, so altogether only about $15,000, which is, you know, on the low end for life insurance. Um, but Todd wasn't the beneficiary for that. It was actually Stacy's uncle who, I guess, got the policies because he had, like, a good job where insurance was, like, a benefit. So the uncle is listed as a beneficiary, or like Stacy's uncle is listed as a beneficiary? Yeah, he's the one who took the policies out on the kids. Is this the uncle that Stacy works for? No, no, no. So the bar is, that's Stacy's brother's bar. Oh, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. So not the boy's okay. uncle, Stacy's uncle has the life insurance policy. Gotcha. It's still All weird. Right. It's still weird. Gotcha. That's, yeah, it's giving me, giving me a little creep side, but it's fine. <laughs> On January 8th of 1992, two weeks after the fire, Todd was arrested and charged with murder, which made him eligible for the death penalty in Texas. The prosecution offered Todd a plea deal that if he pled guilty, he could avoid the death penalty, but Todd refused this, saying, I ain't gonna plead to something I didn't do, especially killing my own kids. So his trial began in August of 1992. The prosecution's argument was that on the morning of December 23rd, Todd poured accelerant on the floor of his kid's room in the hallway of the house leading to the front door and then set the fire which killed his three children. He then stood by and did nothing while the flames overtook the house. They said that this fire was set with the motive of covering up child abuse that had been committed by Todd. So it started in the kid's bedroom? That's interesting. Was there was there any evidence of child abuse none mm -mm. there were no reports no evidence of abuse found in autopsy nothing so then where did they get the idea that that's what his motive was i think that it really came about because stacy had alleged that todd had been abusive to her but we'll talk about it a little bit later stacy herself said he was never abusive to the children Okay. So, yeah, I'm not real sure where that came from, but the prosecution's case really hung on three separate things. So, the first was that the fire investigation had concluded that the fire was an arson. 
The second was an inmate who had been held with Todd named Johnny Webb. Webb had testified that Todd confessed to him that he had squirted lighter fluid on the floor in the walls of the home, including in an X pattern, before setting the fire and running out of the house. He also said that Todd confessed to lighting a piece of paper on fire and using it to burn the arm and forehead of one of his children to make it look like she had started the fire or had been playing with the fire. Um, we'll talk about him later. Just keep him in mind. Yeah. I do want to mention um, the other thing that was sort of brought forward by the prosecution in this case. We touched on it a little bit earlier, but they, it would not be an early 90s case if there was no element of satanic panic. Oh, of <laughs> so the prosecution said Todd was a Satanist because of those Led Zeppelin and Iron Maiden posters. They also <laughs> grilled Stacy on the stand to reveal some hidden meaning in Todd's tattoo. On his upper arm, he had a skull tattoo with a serpent. Um, she said, it's just a tattoo. But this was evidence to further the prosecution's theory that Todd was violent and had a focus on death and dying. They said, quote, Many times, individuals that have a lot of this type of art have interest in satanic-type activities. Seriously? <laughs> they asked him about a skull tattoo to confer that he would murder his children because he's obsessed with death? Because of a skull tattoo and a Led Zeppelin poster? Yes. Oh my god. Okay. Um, it gets worse. So, the prosecution's big angle here, their big hidden thing, was that they, okay, they presented evidence that Todd was a sociopath, and two experts confirmed this. Keep in mind, neither expert ever even met Todd. Hold on. Stop. Hold the phone. Did you just tell me that two experts diagnosed someone with something you can't even diagnose with people they never even met? Remember how I said it? How I said it it gets worse? Yeah, you were. It gets worse. You're kidding. One of the experts had a master's degree in marriage counseling, and one was a family counselor. Wait, Rebecca, stop it. Yeah, so not a forensic psychologist, not not even a psychologist. Not even a clinical psychologist. No, just a family. A family counselor. Yeah. Doesn't have the qualifications for that. I mean, I personally, if I was the prosecution, wouldn't have gone to a marriage counselor to you know diagnose my criminal offender with sociopathy (laughs) and psychopathy so okay you know what i think it's i think it's healthy for everybody if you move on to the next part (laughs) um sorry for you i'm gonna keep going so the one who the expert who determined that todd was in a quote extremely severe psychopath Dr. James Grigson, was expelled from the American Psychiatric Association for repeatedly making psychiatric diagnoses without first having examined the individuals in question, and for indicating, while testifying in court as an expert witness, that he could predict with 100% certainty that these individuals would engage in future violent acts. 
Okay. I, mm, <laughs> okay. Um, first and foremost, some quack this guy is because there's a difference between a sociopath and a psychopath, and you can't interchange them. And you know what? Good on him for getting expelled. I try and remain very professional. Good on him for being expelled. Like, I, you can't. You cannot diagnose someone you've never met. You can't even diagnose someone as a sociopath or a psychopath. You can label them as antisocial personality disorder and then like psychopathic tendencies, sociopathic tendencies, whatever you need to do. But it is not an actual diagnosis. There is a difference between the two. It is extremely unethical for multiple reasons. He is practicing outside of his scope. He yes <laughs> i cannot believe that did the did the defense at least tell me the defense at least threw it out like that would be so i'm not even a lawyer and i think i could put together something that would get that thrown out yeah so the defense was real bad in this case um not only did they not get the testimony thrown out they didn't bring any of their own experts to testify against the prosecution <laughs> Right. So they, again, I'm not a lawyer. However, if I were to be on the defense in this case, probably one of the first things I would do is hire my own fire investigators. Mm -hmm. I would hire my own arson investigator. I would hire my own experts to refute. Because at this point, we also have to think, too. Think of what the jury is Exactly. Hearing. They're only hearing from the prosecution. The jury does not know that that is not okay. The jury does not know the ethics. The jury does not know that that's not how that works. If they even had someone in freaking school, get a student up there. They'll tell you, like, that's not how that works. You need to have expertise, and you need to be licensed, and you need to be in your scope of practice. Like, th th the jury is just hearing incorrect information. Right, and they're not hearing, yeah, anything from the defense to counter it. So. Nope. This is just not how diagnosing works, and it's really a terrible rhetoric. So, while not experts, um, Todd's probation officer and a judge from the case actually both spoke out about this, saying that there was no evidence, there was no nothing that Todd was a sociopath. But... Given what we just learned, it's no surprise that on August 21st of 1992, after one hour of deliberation, the jury unanimously returned a guilty verdict and Todd was convicted of capital murder and sentenced to death by lethal injection. So it took them one hour to decide that someone's life should be one ended. hour. That is insanely fast like I we've talked about certain cases where it's taken like eight hours 16 hours and I'm like dang that's pretty quick one hour um yeah so let's discuss some of the aftermath of this case so Stacy continued to support Todd and defend his innocence for a while but less than a year after his conviction she did change her mind and file for divorce Todd appealed his conviction multiple times. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals upheld his conviction following his direct appeal in 1995, and the Supreme Court denied his motion for rehearing the same year. 
Todd filed a petition for writ of habeas corpus in 1997, which the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals again denied. And in 1998, the Supreme Court denied another petition. So um, for those of you who may be a little bit unfamiliar, when you are convicted, it is your legal right to appeal that decision. Especially if you're put on death row, you have several appeals that you're allowed to go through. Um, all of Todd's got denied. And he even did some extra ones. They all got denied. So while all of these denials are happening, Todd was also having a particularly rough time in prison. Um, he was known as a baby killer, so he got into a lot of fights. He also had some pretty... <laughs> yeah, he had some pretty rough cellmates, including a serial killer. He wrote in a diary often about how his mind was deteriorating and he was questioning his religion. One passage reads, quote, No God who cared about his creation would abandon the innocent. Prisoners don't take well to child killers. Um, I'm sure the death of his daughters was weighing on his mind, too. Did he, did he communicate with anyone while he was in prison? So his mother and father visited him monthly while he was in prison, and like I mentioned at the beginning, Stacy was visiting him, but Todd really stayed to himself. Um, that is until a woman named Elizabeth Gilbert began communicating with Todd in 1999. She was quickly taken with Todd, and when he maintained his innocence to her, she traveled to Corsicana herself to review the trial transcripts. She found some inconsistencies in witness reports, such as Diane's and the firefighters, their testimony had also changed over time. Elizabeth continued to press Todd for details. She also spoke to a lot of the um, individuals who testified on her own, including Stacy, who told her that nothing unusual had happened in the days leading up to the fire between her and Todd. In my research in arson, there is normally odd behavior. There's, there's a buildup to arson. And there is normally signs beforehand. Was he buying gas? Did he have anything to light the fire with? Speaking of, during the arson investigation the first time, did they mention how it was even lit? Like a lighter or a match? Like, did they mention any of that? So they didn't. Um, but I do want to point out the house was also in really bad condition. So I'm not sure if usually they find evidence of how the fire was lit, um, but no, not not that I could find in this case. Gotcha. So okay. Stacy told Elizabeth also that despite that space heater being found in the off position, she was sure that on a cold winter morning it would have been on. She reiterated that Todd was not always the best to her, but she didn't think he was guilty or that he should be on death row. Elizabeth began to seriously lobby for Todd's innocence, and she remained a great friend and supporter to him until the very end. Just as a quick, like, side story, Elizabeth was supposed to be at Todd's execution, but on her way there, she was T-boned by another vehicle, and she ended up being paralyzed and becoming wheelchair-bound. Um, yeah, it's just kind of a, like, a weird coincidence, but yeah, um... Elizabeth is still, she's still around. Um, but Todd would continue to file motions for several years, and they were denied in 2000, 2001, 2003. But in the meantime, there was new evidence coming to light, including, a surprise, surprise, that inmate who testified against Todd came forward and said that he'd been coerced into his statement. The <laughs> I'm so surprised. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. 
The prosecutor allegedly at the forefront of this misconduct was tried for attempting to coerce the inmate to lie for reduced prison time, but he was acquitted. Uh, in my opinion, the biggest bombshell in this case came in January of 2004 when a world-renowned, brilliant fire investigator named Dr. Gerald Hurst received the case file from Elizabeth. He found a lot of mistakes in the original arson report, including the claim that the fire must have burned fast and hot because of an accelerant. Now, this was not actually true. So, um, Dr. Hurst said that fires burn at basically the same temperature regardless. The brown stains that had been noted on the floor that they assumed were accelerant were just rust. The crazed glass, uh, that spiderweb pattern, wasn't from an accelerant either. It was simply from water being poured onto hot glass. The pore patterns, the fire originating from under the beds, the lack of burns on Todd's feet were all also explained by a phenomenon known as flashover in the fact that it didn't occur until Todd was already outside. So I tried to find a way to explain flashover in the best way that I could, but I think the easiest way to sort of describe it is if you've ever watched something be on fire, whether in movies or in real life, the fire is kind of not out of control for a while, and then it reaches a moment where, like, the windows all blow out of a house. That is flashover. It's when it reaches that point where it's suddenly it's out of control. So, essentially, the, what they're getting at, what Dr. Hirsch is getting at, is that the house was on fire, but it hadn't reached flashover so all the windows and stuff didn't break until Todd was already out of it, which is why his feet didn't burn, which is, it kind of explains everything. Um, yeah. There were 20 arson indicators in the original investigation, but Dr. Hurst only found one. The positive test for mineral spirits or liquid accelerant by the front door, but this could easily be explained by the presence of a charcoal grill on the porch as seen in several photos. Dr. Hurst's conclusion was that the fire had likely been caused by the space heater or by faulty wiring. He said, quote, Todd, the Todd Willingham case falls into that category where there is not one iota of evidence that the fire was arson. Fundamentally, this was a classic accidental fire, end quote. Which makes sense why there isn't really matching profiles of the arson. He's not within the age range. He doesn't have that big of a criminal history. He was a drinker, but that's not like a seal the deal kind of thing. It clearly wasn't for heroism or vanity. It may have concealed abuse, but if there's no abuse to conceal, then what are you doing kind of deal? And then also none of this follows the pattern of filicide either. And of course, this would have been very disorganized by how the fire was set. So it would be a disorganized fire, but then he would have had organized behavioral traits so really it, it just doesn't make sense to me that he did it um it's just not making sense in my personal opinion right um i i agree but unfortunately a jury would never get to hear this new evidence todd filed another petition for a writ of habeas corpus and this was denied in 2004 by the texas court of criminal appeals um, he had also filed a commutation of his sentence in 2004 with the Texas Board of Paroles and Pardons. This was also denied, and his execution date was set for February of 2004. Dr. Hirsch's report was also gov given to Governor Rick Perry, and he didn't respond until 2009, 
when he said Willingham was a monster. He was a guy who murdered his three children, who tried to beat his wife into an abortion so he wouldn't have those kids. Person after person has stood up and retestified to facts of this case that, frankly, you all aren't covering. A juror from the original trial, after reviewing Dr. Hirsch reports um, around 2009, also said, Did anybody know about this prior to his execution? Now I will have to live with this for the rest of my life. Maybe this man was innocent. Yeah, I feel like at this point, it really isn't up to Governor Perry um, to make that decision. A jury should make that decision, and a jury should determine everything based off all the information. Um, Shitty job on the defense, honestly. I feel like that even if they gave him a guilty, it wouldn't have been the death sentence. Um, But the jury never had a chance to make a full opinion and that really bothers me and it bothers me that they didn't and then Perry's like oh yeah he's guilty yeah like that's not really your choice (laughs) Todd was executed on February 17th of 2004 his final meal was three barbecued pork ribs two orders of onion rings fried okra three beef enchiladas with cheese and two slices of lemon cream pie he did, interestingly, confess to one thing before he was killed. So, he told his parents that the day of the fire, he'd actually never crawled into the bedroom of his children. Um, so, he woke up, he saw the house was on fire, and he left. He said, I just didn't want people to think I was a coward. That is mm-hmm. interesting. He's maintaining that he didn't set the fire, but he also didn't go back in and save them, which is shitty, but it's not murder. It's not punishable by the death penalty, and yeah. Yeah, it's kind of strange. Like, you would think that if he, and granted, it doesn't happen like this every time, but that if he had killed them on his deathbed, why lie about it? Um, If you're going to be honest about everything else. Right, yeah. Um, Before his execution, he told his mother, don't be sad, mama. In 55 minutes, I'm a free man. I'm going home to see my kids. (sighs) However, his last words are a little different. Um, I do just want to preface this by letting you guys know I'm about to say a lot of bad words. So Todd's last words were, quote, yeah. The only statement I want to make is that I am an innocent man, convicted of a crime I did not commit. I have been persecuted for 12 years for something I did not do. From God's dust I came, and to dust I will return. So the earth shall become my throne. I gotta go, road dog. I love you, Gabby. I hope you rot in hell, bitch. I hope you fucking rot in hell, bitch. You bitch. I hope you fucking rot, cunt. That is it. End quote. Um, that, that took right. a turn. Um, as per usual, I have a lot of questions. Um, who is Road Dog? Who is Gabby? I'm assuming he's telling Stacy to rot in hell. What the fuck? So I have searched high and low, and I cannot find who the hell Gabby is. My best assumption yeah. at this point is maybe that's a nickname he had for Elizabeth. Or maybe that was her middle name. I, I, I have no idea. Um, those last lines, you are correct. They were directed at Stacy, who came to his execution against his wishes. So at the end, he sort of just turned to her and, like, you know, cussed her out. 
And as far as the road dog thing goes, I think it's just like motorcycle slang. I don't, I don't know. Um, Todd's parents had him cremated and also against Stacy's wishes, they spread his ashes over his children's graves. This was done after Stacy denied his request to be buried next to his children. In late 2004, more investigators reviewed the original fire investigation, and they came to the same conclusion as Dr. Hurst. The Innocence Project also became involved a few years later, and they did an independent review during which they found that every indicator of arson was scientifically proven to be invalid. I also found a YouTube video made by Todd's ex-wife, Stacy, and she discusses the movie Trial by Fire. Um, she said the family was not involved in it. She wasn't even aware of production. She says she watched it, but the only true thing in the whole film were the family's names. However, according to the Innocence Project, Stacy has been making wildly different claims over the years, to the point where even the prosecutor in the case said, quote, she's given very different stories about what happened on this particular day, right up to the date of his execution. It's hard for me to make heads or tails of anything she did or didn't say, end quote. She would say at one point um, that before Todd's execution, he had confessed to murdering the children to her. Uh, but the same day, she had an interview with a local media station and told them something different. I, I mean, I can't imagine being in her shoes. And this is no way us trying to, you know, guilt her in any way, but um, she she did give some conflicting statements. Yeah, those are just awful, awful shoes to be in in general. And then having it be literally two days before Christmas, like you go out Christmas shopping and you come back to nothing is devastating. Right, and I, you know, I, I really, you can't even blame her for like flip-flopping what she thinks because imagine, you know, your husband is accused of killing your children. You're dealing with the grief of your children being dead. You've also lost your husband, and then you go to trial, and there's these fake science reports that say, "Yeah, well, he did it." And God, like, what do you, what are you supposed to think? You know. Exactly. Yeah. Um. The only other update I've really been able to find is that Todd's family a few years ago they were seeking a posthumous pardon, but it was denied. And for those of you who may not know, a posthumous, uh, for those of you who don't know, the posthumous pardon is basically a pardon for after you died um, from the death penalty. So essentially they're just trying to clear his name and, and clear the family name as well. Now, what do you think happened in this case? So... I kind of tend to side with, you know, Occam's razor for most of most things in the true crime realm. Uh, so I, I feel like what seems like the most likely scenario is usually what happened. Um, I, I personally think Todd just wasn't a very likable dude. Uh, Todd was kind of an asshole. He was an alcoholic. He wasn't real nice to his wife. Um... But I don't believe that he was a murderer. Um, the fire evidence shows he didn't light the fire. And in my opinion, if there is no arson in this case, there is no murder. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm with you on Occam's razor. And also, if there's at the end of the day, if there's no arson, then there's no murder. Mm -hmm. And the evidence showed that there wasn't arson, so it there can't be a murder. Um, 
there is a lot that goes into determining arson and arson behavior. His behavior before and after didn't scream arson. It didn't scream filicide. It just, it, again, the music and the words didn't match up for me there. Um, and so I would definitely kind of go along with the science because the science is saying that it wasn't arson and he wouldn't really fit it if it was. Um, so I'm kind of with you. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that it's one of those cases where it leaves a lot of people split. People either think Todd Willingham killed his children and he got exactly what he deserved. And there's a lot of people that understand that, you know, science and DNA and the way that we think about things like hair DNA, fire DNA, uh, uh, polygraphs, you know, it changes over time. And as we learn more, a lot of these things that had people sent to death row and executed, they're not even admissible in court anymore. So, friends, that concludes the case of the Willingham family. Thank you very much for listening. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Dr. Crime Pod. Leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and we can't wait to talk to you all next week.